Welcome to the Business Divorce Roundtable. I'm Peter Mahler, partner at Farrell Fritz in New York City. In this episode, I'm very pleased to welcome back Doug Mall, professor of law at the University of Houston Law Center. Doug is a prolific author and thought leader on diverse business law topics, but especially in the realm of the closely held business entity, and even more especially, the statutory and common law rules that govern the breakdown of relations among co-owners, partnerships, LLCs, and closely held corporations. When I interviewed Doug last year for this podcast, we discussed minority oppression in the LLC. In this interview, Doug and I discuss judicial dissolution of the limited liability company, a statutory analysis, which happens to be the title of a terrific article Doug recently published in the Tennessee Journal of Business Law. The article catalogs and tabulates the various grounds for judicial dissolution found in the LLC laws of all the states and the several model and uniform LLC acts and analyzes two particular grounds. Number one, not reasonably practicable to carry on the business in conformity with the LLC's governing documents, and number two, dissolution on the ground of minority oppression. As you'll hear, the variations in language used even within these two statutory provisions is more nuanced than you might think. Doug and I also talk about the tension reflected in the statutes and case law between freedom of contract and the need for corporate-like mandatory rules to protect those who enter into LLCs without an understanding of the operating agreement or the statutory default rules. Without further ado, I give you Doug Mall. Welcome, Doug. Great to have you back on the podcast. Well, thanks for inviting me back. Now, the last time I had you on in the fall of 2016, I, I introduced you to listeners as a brilliant young law professor. Can I tell our current listeners that what you've since lost in youth, you've gained in brilliance? I was going to say all of that is 100% accurate, <laughs> except, except for the fact that I am neither brilliant nor young. But otherwise, uh, otherwise, you've got it. Well, I, I beg to differ. The, the last time you were on the podcast, we spoke about minority oppression as the basis for judicial dissolution of LLCs. Today, we're going to stay on the topic of LLCs using as a springboard your recently published article called Judicial Dissolution of the LLC a statutory analysis in which you catalog various grounds for judicial dissolution of LLCs of all 50 states, and you also bring in the several uniform and model LLC Act. Your article catalogs the statutory differences and explores a few selected issues raised by the diverse approaches that your article talks about. Now, I found it to be a really useful article, and I think any student of the LLC will also find it very useful. Useful. And for me, especially because I've gotten involved in a New York LLC law reform project. Well, and let me just interrupt you for a second, Peter, because I know I've read your blog posts over the years and you've blogged before about how New York and a number of jurisdictions in a, in a seemingly odd way have a much more narrow judicial dissolution ground for the LLC than they would for comparable business that was structured as a corporation. Exactly, exactly. And I know you've written much about that. And, and I think that was in some ways the focus of our the first time we I had you on the podcast. So I'm curious, why the article and, and why now? You know, interestingly, I think this was born out of a conference that you and I both attended a couple of years ago, and I can't even quite remember what someone asked me to do, but somehow I was, somehow I either decided or was asked to explore the differences in 
LLC dissolution statutes, particularly dissolution grounds, I should be clear, for members. So putting aside, there may be dissolution grounds for the state. There may be grounds that a creditor can bring or a transferee could bring. But I was looking purely at grounds that were available to members. And I, I made the presentation and I never actually wrote it up. And for whatever reason, a few years later, I had this opportunity to publish something in a symposium. And I thought this would be a perfect opportunity to just just write up that data that I had gathered a couple years earlier. So I went back through and I think it, it's fair to say that this area changes pretty quickly. LLC statutes are constantly in the process of being amended. Um, and so there were some changes even over the prior two years. And it gave me an opportunity to sit down and think about why these changes exist and to actually write something about it. Well, I, I don't know if you're happy or sad to hear that New York has not done one darn thing to change the statute. <laughs> Well, that's why you're on this new committee, right? That's what's uh, that's what's happening. You mentioned that there's been a lot of change in the statutory landscape. So I gather that those changes, have they been accentuating or diminishing the amount of diversity that you find in this, you know, overall? Oh, I think it's definitely diminishing the diversity. And the biggest driver of that is the uniform statutes. The uh, Uniform Law Commission, which I guess was formerly known as NACUSL, or maybe they're still known as NACUSL, but they have a, I guess the most recent version is the 2013 version of, of the revised Uniform LLC Act. And that is getting adopted more and more by jurisdictions and is definitely creating more uniformity than previously existed, you know, even 10 years before that. I mean, that's pretty fascinating considering that I mean, we know that the first LLC popped up, what, in the late 70s, I think, but it didn't really take off until the late 80s and early 90s. And then there, yeah. was, just, there was just a tidal wave of the states adopting LLC laws. But And all that was done, what, with or without the benefit of either uniform or model acts at that time? You know, from the 20,000-foot view, what happened is the the big governor that was stopping all of the states from passing these LLC statutes was there was uncertainty at the federal level about what the income tax classification would be for an LLC. And so that sort of restrained the development of LLC law for a while. But once that got sorted out with the check the box regulations, the states got out in front of the model or uniform act process. And so we had all these different states that largely had passed their own statute before uh, the ABA or the Uniform Law Commission got involved. What I'm saying is generally correct. The diversity was originally caused by the fact that every state sort of did their own thing. And then the uniform statutes got developed and promulgated. And so then we've been, I would say, over the past approximately 20 years, been in this process of states revisiting their LLC statutes, sometimes for the second time, sometimes for a third time. And now that they've got some uniform templates out there, which, which themselves have been amended two or three times, now you see a process of all that diversity starting to start to converge into some uniformity. The focus of your article, of course, is on the statutes as they provide grounds for judicial uh, dissolution. Was there, or if you could even tell, because I, I know in New York there's almost no legislative history accompanying the adoption of New York's LLC law, was there any attention or real attention paid to judicial dissolution? And I'll just add, in New York, all they did was they lifted pretty much verbatim the judicial dissolution language that was in the revised Partnership Law Act. Well, that's exactly what I was going to say. Is I mean, my 
sense of it is that most states took a look either at their general partnership statute or their corporation statute and simply lifted. I talk in the article how I would say the most common ground for dissolution is this whole notion of it's not reasonably practicable to carry on the business in conformity with your governing documents. And that is a classic partnership ground for dissolution. So I would think most states just look to their partnership statute and took it. Other states also look to their corporate statute, which tended to have, that's where you found more of your oppression-like provisions. The Uniform Act has done both and took some from the partnership statute and some from the corporation statute. So I don't think there was any real common pattern. I think states did what you just described for New York. They either looked at their partnership statute or looked at their corporation statute. And if they were really advanced, they actually looked at both and thought about it. What are the most common grounds for judicial dissolution? Sure. So I'm going to cheat a little bit and look back at, as you mentioned, I have this Appendix 2 in the article, which is where I, I simply attempted to, to basically just bean count and uh, see which grounds were the most common. The most common ground, and let me just say one other quick background thing. So I looked at all 50 states and I looked at six model jurisdictions as well, or model statutes, I should say. And so my sample size, if I recall, was 56 different statutory schemes. And of those 56, 54 of those statutes, so the most common judicial dissolution ground for a member is something along the lines of, and I believe this is the New York provision, it's not reasonably practicable to carry on the business in conformity with the governing documents. I'll just say a a quick word about this ground because what I found interesting is a good number of those 54 schemes would say that you can dissolve if it's not reasonably practicable to carry on the business in conformity with the articles and the operating agreement. Conjunctive. Yes, conjunctive. Then you had, and I can't quite remember in the article I discuss it, if I can find it, I'll mention it, but that was something like 20 some odd jurisdictions of those 54. Then you had another 20 some odd jurisdictions that say stated in the disjunctive that you can dissolve if it's not reasonably practicable to carry on the business in conformity with the articles or the operating agreement. Then you had another dozen or so that would say you can dissolve if it's not reasonably practicable to carry on in conformity with the operating agreement. And they wouldn't say anything about the articles. And then you had a handful that just said you can dissolve if it's not reasonably practicable to carry on the business the end, not in conformity with anything. So I thought that was interesting, actually. Have you seen any cases that read significance into the disjunctive versus the conjunctive? Yeah, you know, I wish. I I had not. So I tried in the article to posit some hypotheticals where I thought it would make a difference. In fact, I saw almost just the opposite. There was a a Delaware case I, I discuss in the footnotes, and the Delaware statute, if I recall, focuses only on the LLC agreement. But the Delaware case was talking about what the article said which I found interesting, and they didn't really call any attention to it. Most of the operating agreements I've seen have some in the recitals or somewhere indicate that the LLC is to be governed by the, whether it's the Delaware LLC Act or the New York LLC law, and they sort of incorporate it by reference. I'm wondering if that makes a difference. Yeah. In other words, is it possible that if all you're allowed to look at is the LLC agreement, 
that you could somehow say that the LLC agreement incorporates the articles by reference and therefore you can look at the articles. Or perhaps we just say that the articles are a species of LLC agreement. It's something that binds all of the members and so perhaps we just consider it to be an LLC agreement. Well, we call them in New York articles of organization. I know they have different names in different states, but you know, the typical articles I see here in New York literally fill up half a page. Right. They, they basically say nothing except designating the Secretary of State as the uh, agent for service of process. They may or may not say that the LLC is member-managed or manager-managed, and then they have some boilerplate language that it is formed for the purpose of any lawful business purpose. And that's pretty much all that you see. Well, right. So, so you, might, you might think that you know, the statutes that simply say all we're going to focus on is the LLC agreement, that may be sort of a no harm, no foul, because the articles don't really, as you just pointed out, usually don't say very much. But let me just point out that they can, right? I mean, they often do not, but there's nothing that prevents you in every jurisdiction that I'm aware of. You could make your articles as detailed as you would like, although you're clearly right, Peter, that normally people do not do that. Um, but I have seen, to be fair, I've seen some articles that have a very specific purpose for the LLC that actually don't say this LLC can be for any lawful purpose. That's a provision that is in the articles that you could imagine making a difference. I'm a litigator. I don't uh, put these things together. But to me, the big difference is that the articles are public and the operating agreement is private. That doesn't, that doesn't get filed. So I would think that when you put in a more robust articles, that there must be some motivation to inform the public of whatever those more robust provisions are. I could be totally wrong about that. Right. I would say the big difference, as you said, is that articles tend to be pub. Well, articles are public and the operating agreement tends to be private. I would say the other big difference is how easy it is to amend. Right. So normally amending your articles is very challenging. So if you want to put something in it that you're hoping, you know, will not change. Putting it in your articles is usually a better idea than putting it in your LLC agreement. But other than that, I, I tend to agree with you. It, you typically don't want to load up your articles with too much because it's public. Yeah. And normally you don't want to make it public. So one big takeaway from your analysis is that every single jurisdiction, every, that is every single state, has some variant of judicial dissolution being available upon the ground that is no longer reasonably practical to carry on the business in conformity with the governing documents. Yeah, I think there were there were two states, if I recall, that didn't seem to have that language. But other than that, yes. And, you know, if I can jump ahead a little bit, you know, you might wonder, who cares? I mean, who cares that there's these, is there any difference, as you were asking, Peter, between the conjunctive and the disjunctive, you know, let me just make two points that I try to make in the article, which is, it seems to me that the right answer is that every LLC needs to comply with both its articles and its operating agreement. I mean, they are, they are both documents that govern the behavior of the LLC and the owners and the managers. And so I would think that if for some reason the LLC is unable to conform with either one of those documents, the articles or the operating agreement, that that should be a ground for dissolution. Now, you don't have to agree with me, but if you accept that that proposition makes sense, then what I thought was interesting is depending on how you interpret the conjunctive and the disjunctive formulations, they may both get you to the same place or they may be different. It, dep it simply depends on how you interpret 
what that and and what that or means. You know, it reminds me of boilerplate provisions in so many contracts I see that say, you know, we'll interpret and as or and or as and. Right. I'm wondering if there are um, rules of statutory construction on a state-by-state -state basis that do the same thing. Well, and let me just give one example because th this, you know, maybe this was only interesting to me, but it's almost like a little logic puzzle. The, the statute says you can dissolve if, and I'm going to paraphrase here, if it's not reasonably practicable to carry on the company in conformity with the articles and the operating agreement. Now, does that mean what I like to call the double if construction? So does that mean you can dissolve if it's not reasonably practicable to carry on in conformity with the articles and if it's not reasonably practicable to carry on in conformity with the operating agreement? If that's what it means, well, then I don't I don't agree with that construction because that's suggesting you'll only dissolve if you can't conform with both of those governing documents. But if you can comply with one, you wouldn't dissolve. So I think that's the wrong result. On the other hand, and again, admittedly, this is almost like a logic game. Maybe that's not how you're supposed to read it. Maybe you're supposed to say there is one condition and that condition is you dissolve if you cannot carry on in conformity with the articles and the operating agreement as a set. Meaning if you can carry on in conformity with the articles and the operating agreement as a set, then you do not dissolve. Depending on how you interpret that, and I talk about this in the article, they lead you to different results. The cliffhanger that I just wanna put in there, Peter, is that if anyone listening is interested, what I found interesting about this is Again, I believe the right result is if you, the LLC can't conform to either its articles or the operating agreement, that should be a ground for dissolution. The, the interesting part of this is, and I'll just say to your listeners that the article discusses this, it may be that an and statute as well as an or statute reaches that result, or it may be that neither of them do. And, and let me just say um, that the article discusses that in more detail. Is the picture somewhat muddled by the way in which courts have put their own spin on some of the statutory language, such as in New York, where we only have that not reasonably practicable provision, but it's been judicially interpreted as including that the LLC is failing financially? I think in a jurisdiction like New York, where there's only one ground, I do think that's going to put pressure on courts to interpret that ground pretty broadly. If the LLC is failing financially, I don't know if as a literal matter, that would mean that you can't conform to your operating agreement or your articles, but I can understand why a court would feel some pressure to say, if this is a losing venture, there should be some reason to you know, make it end. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, in the all-important state of Delaware, I think they've also put a judicial gloss on their LLC dissolution statute, which is not all dissimilar from New York's. I think that's right, and, and Delaware also will use that ground of it's not reasonably practicable to carry on in conformity with the LLC agreement. They'll not only encompass financially failing LLCs, but deadlock. So situations of managerial or member deadlock there are Delaware cases where they find that that falls within that language. So we have an almost universally used, not reasonably practicable standard in for judicial dissolution. What's what? Take it down a notch now. What's the next most common ground? 
All right. So according to my study, that was 54 of the 56 jurisdictions. The next most common ground was unlawful, illegal, or fraudulent conduct by members, managers, or the LLC itself. And that was, according to my count, 29 of the statutes. And that sounds like it's one of the provisions lifted from the corporation law, no? Yes. So in other words, the one word I want you to notice that I did not say is oppression. This is not the corporate section that says you can dissolve on the grounds of unlawful, illegal, fraudulent, or oppressive conduct. It's three-fourths of that, right? It's, it's that provision, but they cleave out oppression from that particular provision. I mean, on the corporate side, that is a ground or a set of grounds that has not seen a lot of use in the case law. If an entity is acting illegally, that would <laughs> that seems like a pretty solid ground to dissolve it. But there seems to also be a lot of overlap with what would ordinarily come about as a, I don't know, a standard lawsuit for either damages or injunctive relief or both for breach of fiduciary duty or something like that. Yeah, I agree. I, I mean, I, I think unlawful conduct, you know, I like to say in class, if you're behaving illegally, it's like dissolution is the least of your worries. I mean, there's so, there's so many other ways you can try to remedy illegal behavior. And, and my guess is that's why you don't see a lot of case law on it, because people usually pursue breach of fiduciary duty or, or other grounds. What's next in the lineup? All right. So that one is, that was 29 jurisdictions. The next most prevalent ground was the oppression ground. And when I, when I say the oppression ground, I lumped in three different articulations. And so most states will say something like, you can dissolve on the grounds of conduct that is oppressive or unfairly prejudicial to the petitioner. A couple of states will say, you can dissolve if it's necessary to protect the rights or interests of the complaining member. And I considered that to be comparable enough to oppression that I, I counted it in the same box. And there were two other jurisdictions that talk about an abuse of authority by managers or members, which again, and reasonable minds could disagree here, but I, I thought that was comparable enough to oppression where I counted that as well. So that was 24. Does that 24 include the model uh, and uniform acts? So it does not include the ABA's prototype and revised prototype statute, because interestingly, those statutes are exactly like New York, which in fact may be where New York got it from. Those statutes have only that one partnership ground that we just finished talking about, the not reasonably practicable ground. But the Uniform Law Commission, the NACUSL statutes, the ones that start with uniform or revised uniform, they all, in every iteration, have had an oppression ground. So of your 24, I guess three of them are the uniform acts, and so the actual count of jurisdictions is something like 21? Yes, is something like 21, and you probably don't care, but the, but it's, it's really more like 20, because California, I counted I guess I didn't count them twice, but they're listed twice because they have both the ground of protecting the rights or interests of the complaining member, as well as abuse of authority by managers or members. So something less than half of the states recognize oppression of a minority LLC member as ground for judicial dissolution. Yeah, I think that's right. In fact, I write in the text that, you know, one of the things I found interesting is approximately 40 states, and I mean states, put aside any model statutes, 40 states in the corporation context have a dissolution for oppression ground, whereas, as you mentioned, Peter, we have something along the lines of 20 to 21 
of actual states, putting aside model statutes that include that ground in the LLC context. Particularly since uh, Check the Box came about and the statutes were virtually, I shouldn't say all, but I, my impression is virtually all state statutes were amended to flip the default rules, which previously allowed an easy exit. In other words, you could withdraw and get the fair value of your interest. So you very persuasively argue in one or more articles that you've written that the conditions that contribute to oppression of a minority LLC member are very, very similar or indistinguishable maybe from the conditions that exist on the corporation side. And so you point out the perhaps illogic of having different dissolution statutes where you have the same circumstances for these two different types of entities. You've talked a little, little bit about the evolution of the statutes, but here we are 20 or maybe even 30 years later why haven't more states adopted oppression as a ground for dissolution of LLCs? Well, I mean, this is, this is the $25,000 question to some extent. I'm, and I should point out to the extent that anybody is remotely interested in looking at this article, that this is the other sort of major question that I try to discuss in the article. What, what might explain why we don't have oppression grounds uh, oppression is a ground for dissolution in more LLC statutes. And let me just pick up on something that you just said, Peter, which is, you know, whether you think oppression should be a ground for dissolution or not, presumably it wouldn't make more sense to have it in the corporation context, at least at first blush, than it would in the LLC setting. And so I do find it odd that you have twice as many states with this ground in the corporation setting. And let me point out that twice as many states is only after 10 years of states adding oppression to their LLC statutes. So it used to be like 40 corporation statutes and more like 10 or 11 LLC statutes. So the number of LLC statutes has actually been growing. Just to now answer your question more specifically, let me just throw out a couple of things that I explore in the article. Perhaps in a number of jurisdictions, there isn't good common law on whether a fiduciary duty is owed to an individual shareholder. In other words, in my state, Texas, you know, there's case law that says directors of a corporation do not owe a fiduciary duty to an individual shareholder. Whereas in the LLC, there's a lot of case law indicating that an individual owner is owed a fiduciary duty, either in a member-managed LLC or by managers in a manager-managed LLC. And so one thought is that we don't need an oppression remedy in the LLC setting because we have better fiduciary duty doctrine to handle abuse of a minority owner's rights. I could kick around some others. One other possibility that I discuss in the article is that, as you mentioned, Peter, right around the time of the check the box regulations, LLCs in most jurisdictions used to provide for exit rights. So if you were a minority owner and you felt you were being treated unfairly, you could cash out of the business. As soon as the check the box regulations got passed for various reasons, including estate and gift tax reasons, most states eliminated those exit rights that previously existed. And I've always thought that possibly legislatures weren't originally tuned into the oppression problem because their jurisdiction had exit rights. So there was no reason to worry about the oppression problem. Then when the check the box regulations came in, they eliminated the exit rights and may simply 
not have connected that back to the oppression problem. Perhaps just due to a legislative oversight, the uniform statutes have been putting that back on the table. Hey, look, we might need an oppression remedy here because there are no longer exit rights in most state LLC statutes. And so possibly the increase in the number of LLC statutes that now allow oppression as a dissolution ground might be because of that. It's refocusing legislative attention on the relationship between exit rights and the need for an oppression remedy. I claim no real expertise in in what I'm about to say. My impression as a New York lawyer where we have what I call sort of two two different worlds of LLCs. You have the far more numerous, you can call them mom and pop LLCs, but basically small, minimally capitalized startup LLCs, two, three, four, whatever, owner-operators. So there's the world of that LLC where people don't spend a lot of dollars on sophisticated operating agreements. They may not even really have their own lawyers. There's really no meaningful negotiation in the sense that you and I know. And then you have another world of the very highly capitalized uh, LLCs, perhaps with a number of passive investor, you know, members sort of akin to limited partners who don't participate in management and typically involving much more sophisticated and highly lawyered governing instruments, operating agreements. As a litigator, I have to confess some partiality toward amending New York statute to add oppression as a ground for judicial dissolution because my world tends to be more with those small undercapitalized owner-operated LLCs where you don't have people negotiating protection for themselves as a minority member. But but in that other world where, again, I can't say this with authority, it's just my impression that they don't really favor adding oppression as a ground because they see that, particularly if it's a ground that can't be waived in the operating right. agreement. I'll... Uh, right. No, I think I think that's I think that's a very good point, and I, I share your sentiment. But but I th- I think there is a very very important misconception that I that I just want to say a quick word about, and that is there is nothing inconsistent about contract and the oppression doctrine. So in other words, I've run into this objection myself, and the objection seems to go along the lines of oppression is a doctrine that can be used to undermine contractual arrangements. And I, I couldn't, even though I write and have written quite a lot about the oppression doctrine, I couldn't disagree more that in fact, contracts are perfectly consistent with the oppression doctrine. You know, the most common test for oppression is what New York has about, about reasonable expectations. Your reasonable expectations as a minority owner are absolutely influenced and governed at some level by contracts that you signed. And you should not be able to stand up and talk about how you had a reasonable expectation that is directly inconsistent with a contractual agreement that you are a part of. And so I don't think there is actually anything to fear because I disagree strongly with the notion that the oppression doctrine can appropriately be used to undermine contractual arrangements. Well, I'll, I'll give you the litigator's response to that, which is that so long as judicial dissolution isn't waivable, and it isn't in New York because it's deemed to be against public policy, some lawyer can always bring a lawsuit that'll get on to first base, even if ultimately it's going to fail. I think that is part of the, the idea that the oppression doctrine can be abused by, by its employers. 
Well, and, and let me just say, I guess I, I wouldn't disagree with that except to say that that's just non-unique. I mean, in other words, if the whole goal is we don't want to give plaintiff's lawyers anything to get to first base on, even if it's frivolous, I mean, if I wanted to get out of a contract, I would just constantly allege that it was induced by fraud. I think in most jurisdictions, that's difficult to waive in advance. And in other words, that could be another frivolous claim that could get me to first base. So I guess I don't disagree with you, Peter. I just don't see the oppression doctrine as somehow being unique in posing those risks of abuse. Have you noticed any statutes that explicitly classify a judicial dissolution provision as subject, you know, unless otherwise provided in the operating agreement? In other words, non-mandatory, waivable. Yeah, so are any of these provisions waivable? So that's a good point. I didn't really focus on that, although I will say that it is my my belief is that the 20 or so states that have an oppression ground in the LLC dissolution area are states that have adopted the uniform statutes. And the uniform statutes, I'm 99% sure, say that you cannot waive the dissolution for oppression ground. I'd have to go back let's say I'm 98% sure. So yeah. if somebody, but I think that's right. And so my sense is that those 20 states that I've discussed in the LLC area, unless they made a non-uniform amendment, I think it's not waivable. I think you're right about that. As far as I know, Delaware is the only state by its case law that has held that you can uh, include in your operating agreement a provision waiving the right to bring a judicial dissolution proceeding. That was the, I'm going to mispronounce it, Huatuco case. I'd love to tell you that you're pronouncing it wrong, but I have absolutely no idea. <laughs> you, you may very well be pronouncing it right. And by the way, let me just add, I hear this argument frequently about Delaware, and I've actually took some time to write about this before. So Delaware does have case law suggesting that a controlling shareholder in a closely held corporation does owe a fiduciary duty directly to an individual minority shareholder. And so I just want to point out that, yes, Delaware doesn't have an oppression doctrine per se, but Delaware does recognize a fiduciary duty owed directly to an individual shareholder in many cases. And at least where I'm from in Texas, when I hear this argument that Delaware doesn't have an oppression doctrine, well, Delaware does have a fiduciary duty doctrine, whereas in Texas, we don't have any clear law indicating that a controlling shareholder owes as a matter of law a fiduciary duty to a minority shareholder. So I'm always a little wary of comparisons to Delaware. Delaware doesn't have an oppression doctrine, but they do have some fiduciary duty doctrine that can be that can be helpful to a minority shareholder facing what we might otherwise think of as, as oppressive conduct. It's um, a little hard or, or unrealistic in my view to talk about oppression as a ground for judicial dissolution without also talking about remedies. On the corporation side, I think typically statutes provide for an elective buyout remedy when a minority shareholder sues for judicial dissolution based on oppression. You've told us now that there are 20, maybe a little bit more states that have oppression as ground for judicial dissolution of an LLC. Do they also include a buyout remedy? Yeah, no, that's a great question, Peter. So I think that those 20 states follow the uniform statute. I see my uniform statute on the floor, but I don't think my headphones cord is long enough to get to it. But let me just say this, that I believe the uniform statute says dissolution, and then they either have it in the code or they drop to the comment, something along the lines of 
you know, cases have given alternative remedies, including the buyout. What I don't think they have, though, is what New York has in the corporate context, which is that elected buyout. I don't recall the uniform statute actually providing for an elected buyout. But again, I'd want to go back and look. There are some states, and I think New Jersey is one of them, when they adopted the Uniform LLC Act of 2013, they departed insofar as their statutes specifically empower the judge to order a buyout in any direction. Direction. They can they can order the petitioner to buy out the respondent or vice versa. Yeah, which I think happens to track the New Jersey corporation law as well. Yeah, and I should I remember there were some New Jersey cases. I think is the first place I ever saw them that actually authorized the oppressed to buy out the oppressor. And I, I think you're right. I think those the first cases I ever saw on that came from New Jersey. I, I should point out that I managed to grab my uh, uniform statute off the floor here. Going back to the question you asked me a moment ago, I'm looking at the 2013 version of the uh, revised uniform LLC statute, and it does say, section 701B, that in an oppression proceeding, quote, the court may order a remedy other than dissolution, end quote. So that's actually part of the statutory language. To be honest, I'm not sure I checked for that provision But my guess is to the extent that most of those 20 states are adopting the uniform statutes, they probably have that same language in there. And I've also seen, I'm thinking maybe at New Jersey again, though I'm not sure that a statute that allows the alternative remedy, whether it's specified generically or particularly as to a buyout, to be overridden by the operating agreement. Yeah, to actually say that you can only get either dissolution or some other remedy and to limit what can be done. Yeah, I always wonder, in a a jurisdiction where the court has the statutory authority to grant remedies, can parties sort of by their private agreement trump that discretion? Obviously, if there's a statute that allows that to happen, I understand it. But otherwise, that seems to me to be a pretty bold move for contract, that you can actually override the judge's remedial discretion. I sort of place your scholarship here in a much broader context of the logic of harmonizing our laws that govern, well, partnerships have pretty much fallen to the side, except in for very limited, you know, limited partnerships still play an important role for, you know, specialized types of industries. But generally, we have the world of the close corporation and the world of the LLC. There are so many similarities, particularly when you're talking about owner-operated companies. And there does seem to be something awkward, may I use that word, the fact that people who really don't understand the law and aren't getting advice from lawyers because they're not paying for them, they can't afford them, whatever, find themselves in a position where it turns out that uh, made a fatal mistake by allowing their accountant to put them into an LLC rather than corporation or vice versa. And so there seems to be something fundamentally off about that state of affairs that would point in the direction of trying to harmonize the laws. Uh, On the other hand, in the other direction is the freedom of contract philosophy that I think invigorated the LLC movement. I don't discount the importance of that and as a distinguishing feature of LLCs versus close corporations. And so I don't have the answer for any of this. I'm just saying that these are the two forces that I see that are in tension that will continue to have some impact on the development of laws, both on the LLC side and the corporation side. 
Yeah, and, and just a quick response to that. My own personal view is I have no problem with different forms of structuring a business having different rules. I just want there to be an explanation, right? I mean, in, in other words, I do find it odd that the same behavior occurs in a corporation, there's one remedy. The same behavior occurs in an LLC, there's a different remedy. The same behavior occurs in a limited partnership, there's yet a different remedy. I do find that puzzling. Now, as long as there's a good reason for it, I have no problem with it. But what I like about this area is that there often isn't any articulated reason for it, which then leads one to wonder is, did it develop as just a product of sort of legislative sort of myopia? You only focused in one area and you didn't think about all of it or, or, or what causes it? Just to give you a quick example, South Dakota has an oppression dissolution provision for their corporation statute. They adopted the Uniform Act for their LLC statute, but they removed the oppression provision. Why? If they don't like the oppression remedy, I can understand, but why didn't they take it out of their corporation statute? Those things I find very interesting. Like, does that, is there a sensible reason for that? Or again, is that just, you know, more accidental than anything else? So at any rate, that's the first issue. This, and the second point that you raised, my view is all statutes should be drafted for the most informal of businesses, right? Because the informal businesses are going to be the ones that tend to rely more on the default rules. And the more sophisticated businesses are going to contract around the default rules anyway. So I don't have any problem with, you know, uniform statutes with default rules in the LLC context and sophisticated LLCs that want to use contract to displace most of those default rules. I think there's nothing inconsistent about that. You only have fights over whether certain provisions for paternalistic or other reasons should be mandatory or not. And I think those are legitimate fights that people can have. I, for whatever reason, older I get and the more I'm involved in expert witness consulting, I think the less faith I wind up having in contract, and not, not because contracts don't necessarily do a good job of allocating rights, I think I've lost faith in my perhaps naivete that people actually read the contracts that they're signing and that they actually understand the contracts that they're signing. But, but that may be a subject for another podcast. I think there's some truth to the idea that those who are in the trenches, and, and you may not be in the trenches the same way I am, Doug, but when you take on the role of expert witness in a case, you're, you're getting pretty close to those trenches. And so we, we see the world of the closely held business entity and the way co-owners behave, uh, I think a little bit differently than those who look at it more abstractly from their academic purchase. Yeah. And let me, let me just say one final note on that and I'll make it quick. Somewhere you wonder how much faith you can put into contract if you believe that most people neither read nor understand the contracts that they're signing. But then that brings up a second question, you know, maybe that's their fault, right? I mean, if they don't read it or they don't understand it, then perhaps there's nothing wrong with, with having a, a legal framework that says that you should you know, be penalized for that. You should be governed by contractual provisions that you signed. And if you didn't understand it or you didn't read it, you know, that's your fault. And I have some sympathy for that position as well. But for whatever reason, when I was younger, I had a much more absolutist version of you signed a contract and that's the end of it. And the older I get and the more I see people 
who don't read and don't understand contracts, I guess I've begun to question, you know, if contract is really the solution to all of this. Well, I'm going to let you have the last word on that. It's been a lot of fun talking with you. It's a great topic, and I hope we can do it again. Well, I appreciate it, Peter. Thanks for inviting me, and uh, yes, please invite me back. Thank you, Doug. I hope you enjoyed listening to Doug's interview as much as I enjoyed doing it. For those of you who'd like to read Doug's article, you can find a link to it on my New York Business Divorce blog. That's nybusinessdivorce.com. I should also mention that the article includes a couple of neat appendices that group by state and frequency of use the various grounds for LLC dissolution in the statutes. I'm Peter Mahler. Thanks for listening to the Business Divorce Roundtable. And if you like it, tell some friends.